Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week we have another listener requested tree to talk about, so thank you Lori for this topic idea. Lori requested I talk about the laurel tree. I wonder why. The laurel is an evergreen shrub that can grow to the size of a small tree, so it still fits in the show's theme. You may also know it as the bay laurel, sweet bay, or bay tree, but regardless of how you refer to the plant, you've likely seen the dried leaves used in various recipes and know that ingredient as bay leaf. Even outside the kitchen, these leaves have found their way into the stories of various cultures, from ancient Greece and Rome all the way to China and the Far East. Let's talk about this flavorful plant and tell the stories that have brought it such fame. So what is a laurel? That depends entirely on who you ask. Laurel is yet another name that doesn't necessarily refer to a single species. Laurel is actually a term that's used very generally to refer to broadleaf evergreen plants. Those of us living in temperate climates may think of the word evergreen and at first visualize trees with needles and cones, you know, pines, spruces, or hemlocks. But in tropical and subtropical areas where temperatures never really dip to lows that we would consider wintry, the so-called broadleaf trees hang onto their leaves year-round as well. These tropical and subtropical broadleaf evergreens, like magnolias or live oaks or anything in the Amazons, are often just referred to as laurels. And these tropical forests can be called laurel forests. This isn't just a common name sort of thing where folks are using general terms too much. Scientists use this generality as well, but to sound sciency, they'll call them lorophyll forests. And I know that name rhymes with chlorophyll, and that may sound like a neat little wordplay, but lorophyll is an actual scientific term, and the rhyme was unintentional as far as I can tell. But speaking of common names, there are some individual plants whose common name is laurel, but is not actually the plant I'm trying to talk about. In the cherry episode, I mentioned there were such a thing as cherry laurels. Those plants are still closer to actual cherries, but they're evergreen, which is why the name laurel was attached to it. There is a relatively common plant in California called the California Bay Laurel. That one's in the laurel family, but not in the genus of true laurels. There's also one plant that is sometimes called pink laurel, probably because of the pink flowers and evergreen leaves, but it's actually very toxic. In truth, this is a species of oleander, and some legends say that when Napoleon's armies were marching around Europe, many soldiers mysteriously died in Spain, and the reason ended up being that they used pink laurel branches to roast their meat, and the toxin was cooked into their food and killed them all. True laurels, that I have now taken several minutes to actually get to, belong to a genus called Loris, and the exact plant with all the stories and recipes is called Loris nobilis. It is often grown as a shrub or small tree. In gardens, it's kept around 8 to 10 feet tall, but these plants have been known to reach heights around 60 feet or 18 meters, which isn't exactly a small tree anymore. 
Laurels, as I have clearly stressed, are broadleaf evergreens, so they have these round, waxy green leaves that stay on all year long. And yes, those leaves are what we are throwing in our stews, brines, and jambalayas to really amp up the flavor. The flowers are these little round yellow guys that bloom in spring. They'll form in clusters at the nodes. That's where the leaves form on branches. And in my opinion, they look like little balls of well-buttered popcorn. Before I describe the fruits, though, I want to explain that laurels are something called dioecious. I'm not sure if I've explained dioecious plants before, but that word comes from Greek roots, meaning two houses. This means that the different reproductive parts of these plants form on separate individuals, creating what are referred to as male plants and female plants. Some plant species have both male and female parts and can pollinate with anything in their species nearby. Some species need both males and females near each other to reproduce. Anyway, what I was getting at with that is that laurels as dioecious plants only form fruits on their quote-unquote female individuals. These fruits form as these dark purple, almost black droops. Droops, as I explained in the cherry episode, are what we commonly refer to as stone fruits. So picture these black grapes if the grape was mostly just a hard seed. And I don't think they taste very good, certainly not like grapes. Let's talk about that name, Loris nobilis. Loris is obviously where we get the common name Laurel, but the origins of what that means are somewhat uncertain. Some folks suggest it comes from an old Celtic word for green, which would certainly make sense because they are evergreen. The plant was originally called Daphne by the Greeks, which has to do with these stories I'll be telling here in just a few minutes. It kind of feels like a jump, though, to go from calling it Daphne to scientifically calling it Loris in Latin, don't you think? Maybe it has something to do with the Roman Empire taking over Celtic lands and their languages mixing to some extent or having influence on the culture. Regardless, nobilis is just Latin for noble. That one's at least easy. And that part of the name also comes from those same stories that I mentioned. The laurel is in the laurel family, Lauraceae. All these names sharing that same root makes them easy to remember. I've actually mentioned the laurel family before in the Magnolia episode. I explained how this branch of the evolutionary family called the Magnoliad clade is made up of plants that are closely descended from the ancient first flowering plants. A lot of these are also broadleaf evergreens native to tropical regions and are broadly referred to as laurels because of that. But in this laurel family specifically, we see more yummy plants like cinnamon and avocado. And I know I've been teasing the spice tree episodes that will include cinnamon for months now, but really, I do have them slated to release in just a couple more weeks. The members of this family are found all over the world in those tropical and subtropical latitudes, but the bay laurel specifically is native to the coastal lands around the Mediterranean Sea. Naturally, the Mediterranean is where our stories begin. In ancient Greece, one of the most iconic quote-unquote love stories is that of Apollo and Daphne. Stories of mythology have a ton of variations to them, but I am going to stick close to the version told by Ovid. 
Ovid was actually a Roman poet, so he converted the names to their Roman counterparts, but the story does take place in Greece, so I'll convert everything back for you. A long, long time ago, Apollo was hunting through Greece with his bow and arrows and came across a large python. And when I say large, I mean massive. A disgustingly, horrifyingly huge snake. But Apollo was a god, so he eventually did defeat it. It was still a terrific battle though, and because of it, Apollo named his famous games the Pythian Feast. This was sort of similar to the Olympics. After the battle, Apollo was tromping around and saw the god Eros shooting his bow. Eros you may know better in his Roman form as Cupid. Apollo decided he wanted to talk some trash to this inferior marksman. He called Eros a little baby, and told him he had a little baby bow. He said, look at that massive snake I just killed, bigger than half the countryside. Your little baby bow could never do that. It just makes people fall in love. That's cute. Eros was understandably upset. Apollo was being mean, and so he took revenge. Eros drew his bow and shot an arrow of gold into Apollo's chest, making it so he would fall madly in love with the next person he saw. Then Eros found a nearby girl, Daphne, who was the daughter of a river god. Poor Daphne, she had nothing to do with any of this. Eros shot her with a lead arrow that would make her completely uninterested in anyone. And Apollo, seeing Daphne, thought, I must have that, and ran towards her. And Daphne, seeing Apollo, thought, Ew, pass, and ran away. And this chase went on for quite some time, Apollo yelling various things at her to try and make her stop. You know, my dad is Zeus. That's right, I'm Zeus's son, the big guy. I'm really good at music. I'm actually in a band, and we're gonna have a really big gig soon if you maybe wanted to come. I'm also a doctor. I'm actually more than a doctor, I'm the god of doctors. But Daphne continued to run, and eventually as Apollo was growing closer, she pleaded with her father the river god and asked him to cover with green earth this body I wear too well. Her father obliged and she began to slow down as her limbs turned to branches and her hair turned to leaves. Apollo caught up to her, but by the time he did, she had already been turned into a tree. A laurel tree, to be exact. The thing is, is that the love arrow that had stricken Apollo was still in effect, so he was just madly in love with this tree. So he took up the laurel, the Daphne tree, and made it his most prized symbol. Like I said, there are variations of the tellings, so you may have heard a version without Eros, where Apollo was just a huge creep and Daphne was simply a strong independent woman who didn't need no man, or where it was the titan of the earth Gaia who transformed her, or that she wasn't transformed at all, but teleported to safety and replaced by a laurel tree. They're all equally valid versions. After this event, Apollo had his oracles chew on laurel leaves to aid them in their fortune tellings. Which is a weird thing to do with your girlfriend, but that's just ancient Greece, baby. There's actually probably a scientific reason they did this. Laurel leaves contain small amounts of narcotic and stimulant compounds, so if chewed in large quantities, you're maybe going to start seeing the future. Apollo also made the laurel wreath the crown for his Pythian Feast games that I mentioned earlier. These games weren't just feats of athleticism like the Olympics either, they also had musical performance and poetry reading as areas of competition. 
Since then, the laurel wreath has remained connected to intellectual achievements. The winners of the Nobel Prize are referred to as Nobel laureates, and the official government poet in the United States is referred to as the Poet Laureate. The laurel wreath is often used as a symbol of excellence across academic institutions to this day. That specific theme of victory was really focused on in the Roman retelling. In Ovid's story, it actually ends with Apollo also declaring the laurel as a symbol of Roman prosperity. And the Romans definitely leaned more into the achievement by strength side of its representation and used laurel wreaths to crown the generals of their armies. The wreaths were also hung on the gates of the Roman emperors. This was done as a symbol of leadership, but also of protection. Wow, a tree with protection symbolism. What a novel concept. There was actually a superstition associated with the laurel that said that lightning would never strike a laurel tree. So it started as lightning protection, but grew to be protection from bad things in general. It was said that Tiberius, second emperor of Rome, would immediately put on his laurel crown when he heard a boom of thunder. Some lesser-known poets suggested that he would also declare non terribus, which in Latin means, I'm not scared! So if there's a bad thunderstorm outside and you're feeling a little frightened, don't be ashamed, because even Roman emperors were afraid of storms. And hey, just run to your kitchen and tape some bay leaves to your head. You'll be fine. But in Roman culture, the laurel was just considered important in general. Romans would often burn food or plants and animals as offerings to the gods, but laurels were banned from being burned as sacrifice. Whenever bay leaves were burned, they would crackle and spark, which, according to scholars like Pliny the Elder, was the laurel's way of telling us that it didn't want to be sacrificed. Because apparently, sacrifice requires consent. Now, we're going to take a big jump away from Rome and over to China. And this is indeed a big jump. The laurel is a Mediterranean plant, so why does Chinese mythology have a story about it? I'll explain why at the end. But once upon a time, there was a man who lived in China named Wu Gong. Wu Gong was a really non-committal guy who got bored really easily. He would just float from job to job and always leave pretty quickly because he got bored and wanted to do something else, which I feel kinship to. One day, he decided he wanted to become an immortal, which is kind of like a god, but I guess different? Not sure about that one. Anyway, Wu Gong traveled into the mountains and found an immortal master to teach him how to become immortal himself. The master told him to learn herbs, and Wu Gong did this for a couple days, but ended up getting bored and said, what else you got? The master said, okay, and had him start playing chess. Which is very interesting to me that this is the path to immortality, learn plants and play chess. Wu Gong was fine playing chess for a couple days, but he got bored again. At this point, I have to assume the master was losing his patience, and he just told Wu Gong to go sit over there and read some immortality books. And Wu Gong did this for a couple days, but he eventually came back to the master and was like, Hey, I'm kind of done with this whole reading thing. Can we, like, go somewhere cool or something? I've always wanted to travel. And at this point, the master had had it up to here with Wu Gong and said, Oh, you want to travel? I got your travel itinerary right here! And so the immortal master banished Wu Gong to the moon. That's right, the moon! And on the moon, there was the moon palace, of course, but there was also this laurel tree that was over 500 feet tall. 
and the master told Wugong that he could only come back to Earth when he finished cutting down this massive laurel tree. Wugong took his axe and got to it, but he soon realized that after each blow, the tree would immediately heal itself. And so, to this day, Wugong still lives on the moon, chopping this self-healing laurel tree and never really being able to come home. So, like Greek and Roman mythology, there are multiple tellings of stories. In this tale's original version, the self-healing moon tree is actually a tea olive. When the story was translated to English, the species somehow changed to be a cassia, which is also called Chinese cinnamon. Still regionally specific, but something a little more familiar because we know cinnamon. Remember that cinnamon is in the laurel family, and in general broadleaf evergreen trees are referred to as laurels. So as time went on and culture started to shift due to global influence, the tree in the story became referred to as a laurel tree. And for whatever reason, not just the general kind, some versions of the story specifically refer to the tree as a bay laurel, the Mediterranean symbol of achievement. In a way, Wugong did achieve immortality, but because of his lack of commitment, it came at a cost. Stories are all well and good, but such symbolism doesn't likely dwell in your mind on a daily basis. And yet the laurel still remains very relevant in our cultures today because of its application in the kitchen. There's actually a bit of controversy around the bay leaf. Many people will claim that bay leaves don't actually make a noticeable difference in a dish. Those people are wrong, but let me explain why. If you smell a bay leaf, it smells faintly herbally. Vaguely minty, vaguely peppery. I have one in my hands. I'm literally smelling it. This is going straight from my nose to your ears. It's certainly not as fragrant as other common herbs. You gotta stick it right up to your nose and give it a big whiff. But what you do with it in cooking, for those with less culinary experience, is that when you have your stew going with all its other components already cooked in, you throw in a bay leaf or a few and let the dish simmer for a little while to let the flavor of the bay leaf seep into the whole mixture. The first thing that people are wrong about with the bay leaf is that you can just let it go for like 20 minutes and be good. No, that's not enough time for enough flavor to be imparted on the rest of the dish. If folks are saying bay leaf does nothing, it's because they don't let it simmer for long enough. I'm talking at least an hour or a few hours. And if you're telling me you don't have that kind of time to make stew, then make something other than stew. It's why stew is always better the second day you have it, because it's the amount of time that you let the components come together that it becomes truly great. The same especially goes for bay leaf. After an amount of time, this herb will impart a subtle, bitter flavor that you won't be able to pick out in your dish, but it ultimately transforms the flavor profile as a whole. That's another reason people say it does nothing is because they can't identify the exact flavor. Stews are often very heavy in umami flavor. That's the savoriness that you get from meat, stock, or mushrooms. The bitterness from the bay leaf cuts through and subdues that heaviness and gives the dish more overall balance. It is truly a magical transformation. Another aspect of cooking with bay leaf is that you should always remove the bay leaves before serving your food. Some folks will say that it's actually poisonous if you consume a whole leaf. This is not true. If it was poisonous at all, then you shouldn't simmer it in your food for any length of time. 
The main reason is because of the stiffness of the bay leaves. I've mentioned before that one way that broadleaf trees stay evergreen is by having thick leaves to hold on to their moisture. This applies to the laurel's bay leaves. When dried, they retain their stiffness, and when broken, the edges become sharp and pokey, which can actually cut your insides up if you swallow pieces like that. But it's not poisonous. Some seasoning companies will sell straight-up ground bay leaves that you can mix into your dish so you don't have to worry about fishing the whole leaves out when you're ready to eat. The oil of the bay leaves that impart such flavors into dishes also have some medical application to them. The oils on their own are unlikely to be strong enough to be used medicinally directly, but the oil has been shown to have certain wound healing properties, as well as contain chemicals that have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. One last way we see the laurel still in our everyday lives is in our names. This tree has become the root for several names like Lawrence, Laura, and Lori. There was actually a caterer at my friend's wedding a few years back whose name was Laurel. I had told her I liked trees, because apparently that's how I flirt with women, and she said that she was named after a tree and told me to guess what her name was. I'm ashamed to say that after three guesses, I never got it. But, you know, that's my fault for using one of my three guesses on Basswood. It is a good name, though. I mean Laurel, not Basswood. Laurel is a name full of wisdom, full of protection and feelings of safety. A name that makes you feel good, like you just ate a delicious stew. I love people with tree names because they carry these rich stories with them wherever they go. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Bye.